Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Tony Zork. As founder and CEO of Accounting Seed, tech entrepreneur, Forbes Books author, and CPA for 20 plus years, Tony embodies iconoclasm, the idea of challenging the prescribed way of doing things and coming up with a better, more innovative solution. Accounting Seed's success with over 15,000 users stems from Tony's vision for using technology to create better business in a way that's never been done before. A father, leader, and a person of faith, Tony brings a rare mix of personal and professional experience to the table and seeks to inspire other leaders to create innovation in places where innovation is scarce. Learn more about Tony's journey and read his resources for leaders at www.tonyzork.com. That's T-O-N-Y-Z-O-R-C.com. Hello, Tony, and thanks for joining me today. Megan, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. I had an opportunity to read your new book, Iconoclasm, A Survival Guide in the Post-Pandemic Economy. And it was very interesting with a ton of great insights and recommendations for making better decisions by questioning our ingrained beliefs. I know, you know, whether we're at home, school or church from a young age, we're taught to respect authority and and to do what we're told, and often with no more explanation than because I said so. At least that was the way it was in my house. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about how we can break the habits that cause us to make decisions blindly and truly start to think about the choices we're making. So Tony, let's get started. Awesome, thank you. Yep, first tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, well, I'm a chief executive officer of Accounting Seed. We're an accounting technology company. We um, service clients typically in the mid-market, the small small to mid-sized business market. And how I got to where I'm at really is I went to school as a CPA, had, you know, I was, when I was in college, I had uh, interest in accounting and there were tons of great jobs coming out of school in accounting and everyone, my teachers and students, they're like, if that accounting stuff's hard. And if you like it, no one wants to do that. So you should go do that. Right. So I'm true. like, I'm like, I think it's pretty interesting. In fact, there's a lot of important decisions made off of this stuff. Do you realize that? And they're like, yeah, but it's really, it's complicated and boring. You know? so <laughs> I'm like, I thought it was interesting. So, you know, I went to school, I, I went out, I got out of school, became a CPA in Michigan. I worked at BDO as an auditor and then went in, uh, went into, you know, started climbing the department kind of career ladder, um, working for various corporations, went overseas working for a company uh, as an international uh, controller, and then really worked my way up to, um, I would say, like that super controller kind of uh, VP position where not quite a CFO in terms of doing, you know, like shopping debt and public financing, but, um, you know, as, as a like a VP of finance. And then I decided what I was really passionate about was the systems behind accounting and automating and engineering uh, that tighter month and close and, and just, you know, being lazy in, in with technology in a way. So I didn't have to do the work. And so I got into selling uh, systems 
I was selling Microsoft mid-market systems primarily, Great Plains, Solomon back in those days. And then a unique opportunity came along my path. So I decided to build an accounting platform powered by Salesforce.com. And uh, because all of the um, technology, Megan, that I was using really was designed in an old paradigm. And this is where kind of the iconoclast formula comes in, which is this paradigm is, you know, systems, software works pretty much one way and you should bend your business process to mirror the way software, the software we wrote works. And this is just a really different, old. it's a very old paradigm. Um, and my whole job as a consultant was implementing the software and finding that, you know, best match of changing the client's business process, as well as customizing the software in a very expensive way. And so I kind of learned how to write some code. I took on some partners and, and uh, you know, 12 years later, uh, things have been going great. We've grown triple digit growth many of those years. We have over a uh, thousand clients and uh, over 15,000 users. And uh, it's been been fantastic. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and I'm always so impressed by just how many different roads there are uh, with an accounting degree. I'm pretty much the sky's the limit. So that is the, the, the nice thing about uh, an accounting undergrad. There is, you know, I, I think, you know, I talk a lot about that with folks. And I think there's really three main paths. You've got the the, the CPA path, you have the CFO path, and you have this path that I'm on, which is this um, accounting systems path. And it's very powerful uh, and so high in demand. Um, so super great career paths. I've done all three of them. I've been on the, you know, I've been a CPA. I've been uh, a manager in private companies and the systems job. And they're all really great paths. So are there any particular stories or moves that really stand out in your mind as turning points? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because when I, I was really bored as a CPA um, and I felt like, you know, in my career, I'm like, gosh, like I was wondering some days, like, am I an accountant or am I, I a lawyer? Because like what I do is review this stuff and make sure it's in compliance with these laws. And I'm like, I thought being getting an accounting degree would be more like future focused, right? And stuff. So I think that was a big changing point in my career where I said, you know, I'm really glad I have this experience, but I want to just be so much more future forward. And then, you know, I went into, you know, industry practice and, you know, closed the books and um, really drove, you know, managed cash flow and helped companies perform financially. And this is a super important role. But then, you know, I think this turning point for me came into like, what am I really passionate about? And it was learning about all the technology behind that. So that was a big career changing point. And then start, and then certainly becoming an entrepreneur, yep. enormous, uh, enormous jump. And then, you know, through the business life cycles, getting the business big enough where um, we could have a true SaaS based model. We didn't, I didn't need, I, when I started out, I didn't have any capital to invest in this. So I had to do a lot of services with, with the implementation of our product and finally got to a point where we could run it without doing services. And then I had to recruit guys like me to work, uh, you know, and, and pick up our product. And so those were all really big stages. And now we're entering another stage where we're really, we've gone international, we're overseas now. So um, 
and we're leveling up and really, you know, having a brand new approach to the market. So all exciting, a lot of turning points in there. Um, I don't know if we've already touched on it or not, but um, you spoke a little bit about your company, Accounting Seed. Um, why did you develop it and kind of what have been its big accomplishments since you started? Yeah, so um, what happened was around like 2008, I had implemented about a half a dozen clients to, you know, Dynamics, Microsoft Dynamics. And all those clients came back and said, you know, we really need accounting to talk to a lot more applications. They need the financial dimension and, and you know, these different systems where people are making decisions, particularly CRM. Uh, and, and so all six of these clients were using salesforce.com for CRM. And so they hired me to, do, to build integrations. And when I got into this Salesforce stack, I realized like it took seconds for me to do what it took days to do on the Microsoft stack. And this was a cloud-based stack and it was uh, multi-tenant. So there was multiple other vendors in there. And I'm like, this is like the iTunes of the business world. This is insane. Um, and that it wasn't just a CRM system, that this was a full computer stack, right? That I, I you could build things on. So I'm like, oh my God, I should just build an accounting system on this. Then I can use all the tools that they use to mold processes for like CRM and services. I could actually apply those to the back office. Because Megan, nobody, no two companies like have the same sales process. So what companies like Salesforce had to do was develop a tool set where you could have your own data tables, your own rules, um, your own interface, uh, because everybody's sales process is different. Whereas the back office is definitely more unified. However, so many people want those same customizations. And so um, what we're able to do and why we're so different and why we claim to be the first ever accounting platform is because of this ability that we provide all the, the, the functions of a normal accounting app, but we are truly a platform that you can build on, you can customize a tool set to your own requirements. And that's, that's what's so different about us and why it's been so exciting and why we've had such great growth. Yeah, it sounds uh, like a, a brilliant idea at the time and, and something that's really worked out. Um, so you recently published a book, Econoclasm, a survival guide in the post-pandemic economy. For those who are unfamiliar with the term, what does it mean to be an iconoclast? And what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, that's no, a great question. And I know it's kind of not a known term. I'm kind of trying to hijack it and take it from my own. But to me, an iconoclast is three things. There's someone who challenges the existing way of doing things they design a better way to do it, and then they actually have a, the discipline to execute on that plan. And um, when I was talking with Forbes Books and you know, they asked me if I wanted to write a book, and I, I'm like, yeah, I'd love to write a book. I've always wanted to write a book. And I think everybody, Megan, should write a book because it really, there's this whole exercise of putting words down on paper. You're like, you're like crap, what a, what am I about? Like, what, what, am, what is my main thesis? I thought it was this, but no, I, you know, it's a really challenging thing to do, actually. I imagine and, it is. Yeah. And a lot of, I mean, a lot of these business books from other CEOs, they don't write them. They have a ghostwriter write them. And I, um, I did not, I wrote, I wrote this book and 
So what, what I figured out in writing this book is really that this is what I've been about. And this is, I think, um, the recipe for success in that um, if you think about all the messages out in the internet, on the airwaves and television, almost all the messaging we have is none of none of this messaging is is encouraging you to think for yourself on any level. So you have companies selling products that want you to buy a specific product. You have uh, nonprofits wanting you to donate to their cause. You have politicians wanting you to vote a certain way. But there is actually no one broadcasting a signal out there for you to think for yourself um, because there's actually no commercial value in that for anybody. And it costs money to, to, to communicate these messages. And I just think that's everything wrong with what we have in, in the world today. And, and more content we have that can help people listen to these messages, but make up their own mind and challenge what's coming from these messages and what do these people have to benefit and what's right for you at the end of the day. We just don't have enough content out uh, there for that. I, this is what I try to do in the book. And I think it's also a difficult thing to do. Right. It's a difficult habit to form. And I try to give practical solutions on how to do this in the book. And I think that's what inspired me to write it and, um, you know, why I uh, wanted to write it, the whole purpose for it. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. I mean, the media, social media um, companies, they all have agendas and, uh, you know, oftentimes we don't think about what's behind those agendas or, or whether or not those things are right for us. Megan, exactly. I mean, that is exactly right. You know, it's, it's what is the agenda behind this, this company, this organization, you know, this media, whatever it is. And, and I need to, you need to think about that. That's what, that's what's missing. We need to think about that. Yeah. So tell us about your journey to become an iconoclast. And when did you really begin to relate to, to being an iconoclast? Well, I think I um, have been doing this longer. I, I realized in the book I had been doing this, doing this a lot longer than I thought. And I think I actually learned it through athletics, even as, as a teenager. I was actually a, a competitive gymnast um, on my social media yesterday, I actually was did a backflip, um, you know, on, on my, because uh, I'm doing a backflip for an accounting rap video. I'm trying to be a, the first ever accounting rapper. So that's <laughs> coming out next week. You'll have to take a look. And, and Megan, my rapper handle is TZ Money. So that's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's I go awesome. by. Um, so I've actually, but so in gymnastics, gymnastics is this very unique sport where there's six events in men's gymnastics. There's the floor, the pommel horse, the rings, the vault, the parallel bars, and the horizontal bar. And it's a, it's a very odd sport in that uh, it's all about creativity and doing things different. You, you do about 12 moves on each of these things. That's called a routine, and you get judged as to how well you do it, right? But there's so much reward in that sport for creativity. In fact, if you do something totally unique, you get to name it after you, and that's like the ultimate honor in gymnastics, which is, by the way, like almost impossible to do now, right? I'm sure. Um, it, it's super hard. But so that sport is all about uh, creating a unique routine 
Um, so I would design, so, so it would be challenge, you know, the challenging of what other people are doing and trying to do things different was very much apparent in that sport as you're trying to find totally original moves. And then the design, you, you were really designing these routines, you're designing them to be different. And then the execution of it is, was so part, like, so such a big part of it. If I wanted to hit this routine in a meet, um, I had to perform it you know, a hundred times prior to that meet. And so if I had three weeks or if I had, you know, six weeks or nine weeks to that, I had to do X amount of days and to do that X amount of days. And I was was putting in a new trick into the routine. I had to back up from there. So it taught me kind of project management and timeline in an indirect way, um, you know, through that. So I think that's where I started doing this. My son takes gymnastics too. I hope it's teaching him project management skills. Well, awesome. He'll have to, I still do handstands and you'll have to show him my backflip. Um, so I'm, I'm 47 years old and I'm still doing the, the backflip. So that I is was, amazing. I was a proud that I didn't hurt myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd probably break my back at this point. I was worried, you know, I, I was gonna, but, and, and I'm doing it, the backflip in a tie. Okay. In an office shirt, which is like, surprisingly super hard (laughs) not very flexible material for sure it is not (laughs) it is not um you've developed a three-step process something you refer to as the iconoclast formula can you expand a little bit on this yeah so the three steps are it's really this challenge design execute so challenge design execute and really trying to just afford uh focus on that because when you know all these things in life, we get so busy, so distracted. And if we can just kind of remember this formula. So challenge, the first part is challenging, like you said, who, who is telling you this and what is their agenda? What is the pair or what is the thought pattern behind this particular thing? And asking, you know, why is that? And looking in, you know, thinking about the history of that, maybe researching it a little bit. So that's the first part. Design is thinking, what are my other options in doing whatever this endeavor is? I just had a, a video on how to drink a gallon of water a day. So this 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 formula can be applied to anything. I applied the, the, the formula to that, right? So designing a solution. So taking in, and this is what software design has really done for me, is it's, it's laid out what we call the requirements. That's everything you need done in this solution and really clearly thinking through all those requirements. And, and designing that and then executing it is what's practical, what's going to work. And it all comes down to execution. You know, all the time I talk to lots of folks, you know, being an entrepreneur myself, they come up and they're, and, and I'll be at a cocktail party and they'll, they'll come up. They're like, oh yeah, that's great. You're, you're doing this business. And they'll say something like, I have an idea to do a business. I'm really thinking about it. And almost like they, they want you to be impressed that they're thinking about it. And it, it, it's nothing till you go to execute it. It's just nothing. It's just an idea. And that's, that's just the difference between an iconoclast does all three of those things, whereas a thinker or, you know, a dreamer may just do the first part of that, right? Yeah. So that's, yeah. that's <laughs> the what execution makes is the most important part, I would imagine. It is. It really is. It really is. It's. It, I call it, it's time for the showdown. Like in the old West, when you have the showdown, you can talk about going to the showdown. You can think about it, but it's until you're going to go do it, it's not real. So um, it's, it's all three of those things. 
So let's talk about 2020. Uh, I know it's a year that most of us would like to forget, but what do you think of the U.S.'s reaction to COVID-19 and why do you think we ended up in such a state of panic? Yeah, so I I clearly think uh, in my book, I outline this and in the book, I want to be clear, is not a political book. Um, it is, I classify as more in the self-help area, even though it is, I would say, a little bit more um, slanted towards business readers because that's my background. Um, but so what happened with COVID was we were just as simple as com- we were completely unprepared for this. And, um, you know, being unprepared and uh, not really having any plan, you know, we completely panicked as a society and just shut everything down. That was just the the easy thing to do when, you know, panic kind of can be the appropriate response when you're in the situation. But that's that that's the reality of what really happened here. I mean, I grew up in the Midwest where we did, you know, tornado drills. I live out on the East Coast. We have evacuation plans for hurricanes. So there's some level of training and thoughts how to handle these things. So when they happen, you know, you take care of them. Like in, when I was growing up as a kid in the Midwest and we were doing tornado drills, we would actually go out in the hallway, put our uh, hands over our head um, in the hallway and yeah. be on our hands and knees. And and the teachers would come by and judge our like form on this, right? Um, <laughs> I'm from Ohio, so I know, uh, okay, I yes. know that drill well. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm talking about? So like who, where, we've never done anything with like, pandemic or social distancing. I had never heard of the term till this, right? So we had this, this panic attack and, um, and just, you know, our reaction to that was, you know, just this feeling of being lost and we've just drifted. And, you know, I think we've swung from both extremes on this thing, uh, since it started. So, uh, but that's that's why uh, I think we ended up in a state of panic is is uh, because we didn't have any you know preparation for this. So given that, how do you think that we uh, should have or can change how we reacted to COVID? Uh, God forbid that there's ever a next time. But how can we, as uh, as an individual and a community and a country, be better prepared for? another pandemic or panic situation should one arise? Yeah, well, I, I mean, to me, what I, I think we need is a, some kind of, an, a, 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 I view this as a dimension of the weather, like the wind, uh, like rain. We have alert systems for tornadoes. When we have, we have this, we have air quality ratings. We have, you know, we can tell the pollen allergen ratings, right? And we have rating systems for this stuff. We have, you know, when you have a tornado or a hurricane, we rate these on a scale from one to five. I don't know why we can't do the same with something like this. And whereas, you know, nobody goes out in a stage five, you know, hurricane, like you'd be nuts. You know, you'd be nuts to do that. And you have to leave the area. Right. So with something like this pandemic, half the people I've talked to are like, oh, my God, this is a one. Like, don't worry about it. It's nothing. Right. And then half the people are like, this is a five. Your life's at stake. You're going to die if you get this. Somewhere in between is probably the truth. You know, I, I 
you know, talked a lot about this and I've settled, I think a lot of people I've talked to generally assessed, you know, it maybe is in the two to three category, but this is, you know, matter of opinion. And then you have all the people listen to the science and all this. And mm-hmm. so, um, but the reality is, you know, I think, you, you know, it's not illegal to go out in a hurricane. It's just stupid if it's a five, right? And so it, the same thing should not apply to this. It, it's an, I think it's an insane overreach uh, to make decision for, to not let you make your own decision on what to do, what's best for you, you know, and your health. And that's my opinion. And I think, you know, it's a time to, uh, respect other people's opinions too. So I, I, you know, don't want to get angry about it, but I think it's, it's absurd that, um, you know, we can't make our own decisions based on good information. Yeah, I completely agree. And yeah, I feel like whether you were a one or a five in the beginning, like you, it was hard to change people's minds once they'd made it up in the very beginning, even it based is, on new it, new data and information. Well, it, 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 because we're now in this super sphere of internet media where every, um, and we gravitate towards like the ideas and thoughts we like, and we just camp out in there. Yeah. Right? And, and then so, you're fed more of those ideas that you like. And you're fed more of that, whatever that source is, right. Whether you're watching a, you know, a, a, a right wing thing saying, um, you know, this is like a conspiracy or you're watching something that's super, you know, fear driven, like you are going to kill somebody if you walk out of your house, like, and just camping there and hearing that same message over and over again. And, and what, you know, so what I tried to do through this is really vary my media and, and, and use these um, sources of input uh, as that, as advisory, right? But make up my own mind, you know, not, and, and get opposing views, right? Like what is, you know, does this make sense? What are the facts here? What well, the facts are that, you know, 0.2% of the population, uh, you know, died from this. And mostly those under, you know, 85 were, were not at great risk. And, you know, this is, you know, can you imagine something like spinal meningitis that kills an 18 year old within 24 hours of getting it, right? That would be a five, right? Yeah. On the scale. We, we, were nowhere, we were nowhere near that, right? And this state of panic happened, but, you know, people are not uh, getting a variety of inputs. And also the other thing, Megan, that really was lacking, and I think this is where leadership comes in, is, you know, nothing in life is risk-free. I mean, I can walk out of my house and walk across the street and get killed, you know, uh, but it's a risk-return ratio, right? And I think in the business space, a lot of professionals are more familiar with this concept, but a lot of um, areas in life, you know, people aren't. And if there's any risk, they tend to just lock down and not kind of look at the risk return, right, with something like this. And we, did, we didn't have a lot of coaching in that. There was no, there wasn't a lot of, you had people saying, go in, go out, not a lot of in between, right? Not a lot of make up what's, you know, make up your mind what's best for you. Yeah, I mean, I totally blame the media for a 24-hour-a-day bombardment of worst-case scenario. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, when you have Chiron streaming across, um, you know, just the death. I mean, if you're constantly just look, looking at the death toll, how do you focus on anything 
but people dying. Like, I mean, but the reality is people have been dying every day since we've been on the planet and they continue to die every day and people are born every day. You just you yeah. don't have it front facing. Circle of life. Yeah. And yeah, I, I love your advice to, you know, get opposing views. Don't surround yourself with the same sound clip over and over again. And use your brain. Okay, what makes sense for you? And what are you seeing? Like, do these, does, does what's being said on the news really affect you? I mean, and I mean, if you know, who are you interacting with in the day? What is your real risk of what's going on here? And for some people, it's totally legit, right? Like, maybe you're a healthcare worker, and you're dealing with sick people. And like, you need this protection, you need, um, you know, and you're, you're overstressed. But there, there's a lot of people not remotely close to that situation, um, don't even, you know, don't even have to uh, go six feet near anybody, you know, and, and but yet locked down living in like complete fear. Yeah. Just because just because of the panic and what they're watching and whatever, whatever message you tell yourself. I mean, I've learned this as an athlete. I've learned this as an entrepreneur. Whatever you tell yourself, you become if you if you say I can do it, I can do it. You, you end up doing that. If you say, you know, whether uh, you can or can't, you're right. You know, that yep. saying is so- I love that one. Yeah. And it that's so true. You can convince yourself of anything. You can. You can, good or bad. So switching gears a bit, um, are iconoclasts always inventors, entrepreneurs, or philanthropists? No, they are not. And I actually cover this in my book because I think there's there's a there's a difference between an iconoclast and an inventor and an entrepreneur and a philanthropist. Now, those can be, they can overlap, uh, but they are different things. And, um, you know, a lot of times inventors are not iconoclasts because they don't actually execute on their inventions. They'll design it, but they'll hand it off to somebody else. And um, there'll be several entrepreneurs that actually take someone else's design or buy a business, you know, that, that challenges the way that the first two steps were done. Maybe that the business they're buying, um, you know, is a different way of doing things. Um, and they're really just the execution part of it. Right. Or the philanthropist could be, you know, any, in any, it's really a philanthropist is someone who's, who's trying to do something for society and it may involve uh, something original or not at all. Right. So I think there's now it's a case that a lot of times, those folks are iconoclasts, but it's not an iconoclast can be anything. Again, anyone who challenges does the challenge design execute formula. So it could be a mom uh, trying to find a better way to educate her preschool or get her, get them to, you know, to class, or it can be, or it can be an inventor, anything in between. And for all the entrepreneurs out in the audience, how can they apply the Econoclast formula to identify and pursue better ways of doing things? Yeah, so that's what, I mean, my book is so much about um, doing this formula. And I spend a lot of time on that first part, which is is challenging uh, the paradigm, challenging the existing paradigm. So the paradigm is really just the established way of doing things. And it's it when you start to form a habit of of challenging this then you start to love change because change is just all of all of the established ways of doing things are based off of stuff that's already happened and and what i call dynamics which are belief systems or 
are, are it, they can be technology, they can be laws, they can be, you know, uh, anything like, you know, the, the earth is round, right? That, that was, it used to be the paradigm used to be, it was, you know, the earth was flat. Not well, I guess it is again, you know, we have that paradigm again <laughs> now, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, until then people thought, uh, you know, the earth was flat. So, you know, these are major, that's just a change in belief system. So that opens up, uh, that's a dynamic that things were based off of. And once that would change, you know, things, things can change. So it's developing this habit of thinking that way, looking at and being organized in your thought pattern, being able to break those down and, and spot these. And once you do, once you develop that habit, you, you see opportunities everywhere. In fact, you are so overwhelmed with opportunities that you will have to choose uh, what's best for you to pursue as an entrepreneur. And it's exciting. There's no shortage, no shortage um, of great business opportunities. Now you should not be thinking, oh my God, everything's used up. Now, every day a new one pops up. You just have to look for it and be able to spot it. So it sounds like you don't believe that people are born a kind of class, that they can actually learn the skill. Yeah, I believe they can. I, I mean, I don't think I was born this way. Um, I feel but, like you my know, son was. Uh, my, my son was. He's yeah. always questioning authority. Yeah, well, it, then that's awesome. Then he would have a time, you know. But the thing is, I think we're all born this way, but then possibly whipped in the submission, yeah. right? Maybe it gets through, beat out of life. us. Like, it gets beat out of you, right? It gets beat out of you because people need you to do things, right? And you can't you know, questioning why and everything seems to slow down the pace. And, um, you know, it takes a loving parent to really foster and raise an iconoclast. I think that's what my father did for me. He was wanting me to, he wanted to raise all three of his kids to think for themselves. And I, and I, and it, it, if you think about it, back to my original point, there's no commercial value for you to think for yourself. So it only comes from a place a, probably a loving parent or someone who cares about you and wants you to be independent. So that makes sense that there's, you know, maybe it's a teacher or a coach or it's someone who actually really cares about you as a person, not just wants you to buy something or do something. Um, so one last question going back to the pandemic and uh, your view of iconoclasm, but how do you feel like we've been changed as far as the way we navigate relationships and as consumers. Oh gosh, yeah, Megan. So my book is goes into this a lot, a, a lot of ways. I think you know the huge points are you know the the, the workplace for knowledge workers is never going to be the same ever. We are not going to ever see anything like we used to do. The the concept of driving to an office, working there, uh, forty hours a week in person, I think is completely dead. I think um, there'll be certain use cases for that where you're, where you're new to a company. Uh, but technology has proven that we can work effectively in a business setting uh, virtually, and that's going to stick. It's also proved that we absolutely hate this technology for personal relationships, and it's just awful. And we've all been waiting desperately for this is the end so we can see people in person. And, and so this is horrible for personal relationships, but actually very effective for business. And there are so many ways we can introduce technology 
into commercial processes that are going to streamline and scale them immensely. So going to a bunch of these examples in the book, and that's what a lot of the fun of writing it was. Yeah, I, I for one, am thankful for um, virtual workplaces that are here to stay. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, I feel like the pandemic has kind of pushed along the digital agenda by at least 10 years as far as companies and websites and it, it absolutely or, or permanently or or it never would have even happened Megan like as an as a business owner uh, I can tell you prior to the pandemic I had the mindset if my employees are not in my office they're not working there's no way they're not working and I do not trust them yep. enough to let them work at home no way now this pandemic hit I was forced to do this over a year and through being forced to do that I realized you know what they are working at home um, in fact, they might even be more productive. Yeah. Um, and I have to, I have to measure them differently. I can't, it can't be a clock in clock out type of thing. I got to look at what are they doing? You know, what are they getting done? And it's hard. It's hard as a manager, uh, to see that. It's also very hard to build a culture now with this, this, this virtual aspect. That's going to be very challenging, uh, for companies. Um, but you know what I also realized is when they were in the office, I was kind of fooling myself that I actually knew what they were doing too. Um, I don't know what they were had up on their machine. I don't know how productive they were. I don't know if they were chatting or social media. I mean, so that was kind of an illusion too. So, yeah, you know, I think a lot of this is being shattered and you, you got to look for the truth, you know, and you, it's out there, but it's just, it, you got to be more discerning. Yeah. I think that pretty much sums it up. Look for the truth. Um, so lastly, now that we're well into 2021, um, on a personal note, what's one goal that you're hoping to achieve in 2021? Wow. Geez. Well, I'm doing, uh, like rapping might be one. Yeah. So I got my <laughs> rap videos out. I I'm doing what I call Murph climb. Um, so I'm doing the, um, pull-ups, push-ups and air squats equal to the day of the year. So today, I'm on today's day 127. Wow. So I have to do, I'm doing 22 pull-ups, 42 push-ups and 63 air squats. So that goes up. So I'd be, you don't want to talk to me in December. I'm going to hate life <laughs> where I've got to do like 330 through like, you know, 365. Um, and I'm doing four five day fasts this year. So I've done two of them. So I, I just uh, don't eat for five days. Um, Nothing, uh, just wow. water um, or, or like tea. I have tea. Um, or, that sounds miserable, but I, um, I know there's a lot of benefits. Of oh, it's actually, it's actually wonderful. It, it really is um, when you train your body to do this. Um, it's been great. It, uh, fasting totally, totally removes it, 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 the inflammation from your body. gives yeah. it a break. It allows it to heal. It's super, super healthy. And you have a lot of energy actually while you're doing this. It's, it's, so those are some of my personal goals, as well as um, getting my audio book done, the audio book version of this, as well as continuing blogs and doing uh, fun interviews like this, Megan. Well, that's awesome. And Tony, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I've enjoyed speaking with you and hearing about your experience and advice regarding Econoclasm. The book was a great read, and I found it to be very good use of my time. So for all of those in the audience who are interested in reading it as well, where can they find the book? 
if you just go to if you go to tonyzork.com and, and go on the author page, um, you can find it on Amazon or Books a Million or Barnes and Noble, or you can go directly to Amazon and type in my name. It's T-O-N-Y-Z-O-R-C, or you can go to iconoclassbook.com. All those will take you there. Okay, great. Um, to all of our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and please tune in next week. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personiv.com. Thanks for listening.